Uh, If you have a Bible, please make your way to John chapter 15. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. John chapter 15. Let me open us up in a word of prayer briefly as we begin exploring the text together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your perfect timing in all things. Thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you. Father, yes, we want to lay down everything and say that you are all that we need. So give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear all that you would have for us this day so that we might leave this place changed and ready to move and ready to serve and ready to love for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 15, I'll read our text beginning in verse 12 and reading through verse 17, the words of Jesus as written by the apostle John. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Not a very low bar, is it? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That means remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let me begin with this question. What is God's greatest hope for your life? If I was putting on my pastor theologian hat, this question, there's a little nuances to it that we could debate and talk about and theologically kind of get into, but just receive it as it's stated and and think about the question, what is God's greatest hope for your life? Or said a different way, if God had one wish for what could become of your life, what do you think it would be? If God had one wish for your life, what do you think it would be? I thought about this question in relation to my hopes and my dreams for my children. They're here this morning and, you know, I shared the little joke at the first service. It's a fun joke in our family, so I know he doesn't mind. But I might have the hope, simple hope, small hope that one day my son will cut his hair. You know, it'll get a little shorter. There's this whole thing going on in like the 2020s now where you see these homecoming pictures of all these young men. And I I don't know what happened with the generations, why we had to go back to the 60s or whenever the whole season was with long poofy hair where, you know, getting perms or all the rest of it became a thing. But like, I don't get it. But so I can have the hope. I can have the hope that, you know, our children learn how to clean the room or, you know, get along in the car on the way to church or do these types of things. But there's some hopes and dreams that I really deeply feel and pray over them really ever since they were little, since they were born. In fact, I thought about uh, the things that I've shared over them, prayed over them. We pray about other things, but usually I always say these things. Before it became such a well-known worship song, I prayed a simple paraphrase of the blessing that is found in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, where, where I would pray that the Lord would bless them, protect them, keep them, make his face to shine upon them, be gracious to them, and bring them peace. I pray that they would hold on to their purity in their heads and in their hearts. 
I pray that they would be leaders for the gospel and not followers of the world. I pray that they would be used by God to make a difference in this world. And I always pray, I pray that they would love Jesus more than every other thing in this world. That they would love Christ more than everything else in this world. I long for these things. I hope for these things. This is what I wish for their lives. There are so many other things I hope for them, but these are the big ones. What is it that God desires for your life? What is God's greatest hope for your life? If he had just one wish for what would become of your life, what do you think it would be? As we look at the scriptures throughout the Bible, and certainly as we look at the chapters that we've been exploring, John 13 through chapter 16, I think we can summarize God's one wish for what would become of our lives is just one word ultimately. It could be unpacked so many different ways, but it's ultimately one word, love. Love, such a simple word, we hear it all the time, use it all the time, and yet it is the central hope, certainly, that we find on the words of Jesus this morning. The most famous and central commandment of all the Old Testament is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, written by Moses. In verses 4 and 5, it's called the Shema. Shema is just a Hebrew word. It means listen or hear. It's repeated throughout the New Testament where it begins in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says, Hear or listen, O Israel, O nation, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Jesus shares the centrality of this command in his ministry as well. In Matthew chapter 22, he's asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God, same thing with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So as we've seen over the last several weeks, if you've been joining us consistently in this series, if you've been journeying with us each Sunday as we've walked through this farewell discourse of Jesus, which, by the way, just, just give me a moment to, to go on a tangent here for a minute, because I want to talk about joining us consistently. Um, I was thinking about this so much this week. It, we need to talk about this, because this, this gathering, the worship service, I'm so grateful for all who join online. I'm grateful for that technology. But this physical gathering of the local church in the room, the truth is, I need this. And the truth is, if you just let me challenge you for a moment, you need this. We all need this time together. We need to listen together. We need to worship together. We need to be challenged together. We need to serve together. The gathering together of disciples of Jesus in the context of a local church is not some optional part of our spiritual life. It is oxygen. It is water. It's essential to our faith and the effectiveness of our mission. So let's not make the mistake of viewing Sunday mornings as some second-tier priority. I know the trends. I know the data. I was talking with Pastor Jonathan uh, over text just yesterday, asking him the data because he loves data. 
He knows how to measure things and keep things and think through things. And he, he's got a wonderful mind. And so I asked him, well, tell me about your church family. Let's talk about Woodside Royal Oak. And let, let's think about consistency because as we're working through this series, how much is building with the people of God in that place? How much momentum is moving as they're coming together each week? And he said the average Woodside Royal Oak attendee and member joins 1.35 times per month. I get it. There's a lot going on. And I appreciate that you are all in the room this morning. I get that. I'm grateful for it. I, I get that there's a lot going on. You're traveling, you're hosting, you're working. Your kids have a game. There's no sacred time on Sunday anymore. Your grandkids have a game. You're exhausted. You don't know who's preaching. You're, you're not sure what we're going to sing. You, you can just watch online. You, 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 you'll get more consistent when a new pastor shows up. Friends, what would have happened in the book of Acts if the church stopped meeting together consistently? How much, would be, how much would the movement of the gospel had slowed down? How, much, how, how many of them would have fallen away from the faith because of isolation? How, how would the world see Christ through their love for one another? How, how are we able to receive and extend love to one another if we are by ourselves? I, I get it. I know what the culture's saying. I have these discussions with pastors all the time. We just need to embrace the new day. We need to embrace technology. Yes, I want to utilize technology, but the the truth is, there's some things in our culture, when we think about it, the Christian faith has always been opposed to. And the reality is we need to be together. If we're going to demonstrate love for one another, then we need to see one another, be able to touch one another, be able to listen to one another, to be able to talk together. I can't truly love my wife if I see her 1.35 times a month. Who are we going to be? What do we have to offer? So just receive that challenge graciously. Don't miss this. This isn't about a celebrity pastor. This isn't about who's on a stage. This is about a church family that God wants to use that is empowered by his spirit to hear his truth, to embrace his truth, to leave this place and change your community. That's what this is for. And that's for your good and for his glory. So don't make it some second tier priority, friends. It's too important to our faith. You'll find yourself, I've been there, you get cynical, you get isolated, you get alone, you drift. So part of prioritizing love means prioritizing presence. Part of prioritizing love means prioritizing presence. So Jesus, he, he continues to highlight this priority of love. Let's get back into this theme here. Let me share with you just a few of the places we've been. John 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. The same things we just read. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And again, verse 12 in our chapter here this morning started the same way. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. In these two verses, Jesus is so definitive. This is how the world will know that we are followers of Jesus by their observation of our love for one another. This is what Jesus says. There's, there's nothing confusing about it. This is it. He's very precise. What he wants is very clear. He wants us to love. 
And notice what he says in 1512 as well. He says, this is my commandment. It's, it's singular, a singular commandment that, that you love one another as if Jesus only had one commandment. I mean, it's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? You have a whole bunch of commandments that you've shared. He's like, yes, but this, this is it. This is my commandment. This is my singular commandment to you in this farewell conversation before I head to Calvary is that you would love one another as I have loved you, as the Father has loved me, and as I have loved him. Think about in 1 Corinthians 13, other places in Scripture, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 13 of that very famous chapter. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide or remain these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is an incredible thing to say because faith and hope are crucial for us to have. We have faith in Christ. We are believers. Faith is the basis of our salvation. Without faith, we are not saved. And we hope, we have the hope of the resurrection, the hope of heaven. That is, uh, that is a hope that will see us through every storm, every trial, every season. But Paul says, as important as faith is, as important as hope is, the greatest is love. Or think about Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. This is where the Apostle Paul describes what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit means the types of intangible things that the Holy Spirit produces, produces in us as we walk with him. And it's a list of characteristics, but the very first, the priority, is love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But the beginning, love. Or think about what I consider to be one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. Romans chapter 8, what is the greatest hope God has for our lives? Love. And once it has been received, his love through faith, uh, our greatest hope is that we experience the love of God tangibly in his presence for eternity. That's what Romans 8 is all about. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The whole hope of the Christian faith is to experience in, in an eternal, tangible way the love of God. So I hope you can see that God's greatest hope for your life is truly that word, it is love. Now even though that sounds clear and simple, we all know that it's not. Fighting, breakups, divorce, church splits, bitterness, betrayal, hatred, anger, violence, you pick it. We could go on and on with all the unloving things that take place in our lives and in the darkness of this world. So what is Jesus going to say here? How, how else is he going to help his followers truly embrace what he's after in this conversation? We find two answers. The first is this, that Jesus defines our definition of love. He defines our definition of love. Again, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. He's bringing definition to the way the disciples are to love. He's clarifying that they are to love one another in the way that he has loved them. And then he describes what that looks like. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
So Jesus says, this is the kind of love I have for you. And this is the kind of love that you need to have for one another. The kind of love that moves you to sacrifice. It's sacrificial love. That's the nuance. It's not just any type of love, it's sacrificial love, the kind of love that lays down your life, that lays down your desires, your wants for others. And in just a few hours from when he spoke these words, that's exactly what he did. He headed to the cross, the greatest expression of sacrificial love the world has ever known. And the cross was not a moment of suffering for his sin. It was a moment of suffering for our sin. It was not what he deserved, it's what he endured for us. At the heart of so many of our favorite stories is this concept of sacrificial love. It's in movies, it's in books, it's all over the place. If you're a Harry Potter fan, Harry Potter, think about that one. It's, he's Voldemort's final horcrux. And so Harry offers up his own life so that the Dark Lord would be defeated. In my favorite children's book, uh, C.S. Lewis is the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Remember, Aslan is the character like Jesus in the story. And there's a white witch, which is symbolic of Satan. And Aslan lays down his life at the stone table for Edmund, for another. The white witch slays him, but Edmund is freed. I mean, you can move to movies today. I mean, you can think about Iron Man sacrificing himself to defeat Thanos, to save the universe. I mean, there's so many examples. You can go to any war movie that's basically out there. You see this picture of sacrificial love. Why? Because there's this longing, I believe, in each of us to connect through story with the power of sacrificial love. Somewhere in our souls, we all know that we kind of need that type of love towards us. We want to know if somebody is willing, if there's someone out there willing to give everything for me. There's something like written on our soul wondering if that's a reality out in the world. Will somebody love me that deeply, that well, that much? And so authors fill story after story and movie after movie with sacrificial love because they know it's what compels us and grips us and inspires us and gives us life. But all those stories and movies about selfless courage, wonderful as they are, are nothing more than a shadow. It's just a faint echo of the truest story of all and this truest story of sacrifice that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The story of all stories is the plan of our creator to bring life and redemption to his fallen creation. And the hero of the story is God's own son, the Lord Jesus. Now, earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said this of himself. It was one of his seven I am statements, the I am statements in John's gospel. Again, there's seven of them. They, they really define the ministry of Christ and the identity of Christ. And so in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And right after Jesus said the greatest love is to lay down his life for his friends here in John 15, he did. Jesus defines love as sacrifice. And he says, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus' understanding of love is contrary to the type of love so often really probably experienced or felt or the one that we think of at first glance when we hear the word in our culture. In our culture, the first thought that comes to mind when we hear the word love is not necessarily sacrificial love, it's romantic love. 
Most often we think about it in those terms. Romantic love relates to loving someone because of the way they make you feel. It's infatuation. It's, it's the person who makes you feel complete. It's, it's something that you can fall into and, and you get excited about and there's passion and there's, uh, there's joy there. And yet at some point we eventually learn like once we move beyond the teen years and move a little bit into the 20s. And so if you're a teenager here and maybe you're just in these first seasons of starting to feel something towards somebody it's just a lot of infatuation. It's a lot of romantic love. It's a lot of these types of thoughts and feelings. And then you move into your 20s and it starts to shift and adjust depending on relationships and your own journey and path. But eventually we hit this point of life where we learn that if that's your only definition of love, you're going to be disappointed because it comes and goes so fast. Now the scripture doesn't belittle romantic love. Scripture doesn't judge us for feeling love in that way. Not at all. It's given by God, but Jesus is teaching us that the greatest love goes far beyond mere feeling. It goes far beyond infatuation. It's gracious, it's selfless, it's sacrificial. This means that a husband sticking with his wife and daily visiting her in a memory care unit as she suffers through her last days with Alzheimer's, that is a clearer more beautiful picture of love than a young couple frolicking down the beach and holding hands. That's a more biblical picture of love. In Ephesians chapter four, the apostle calls us to bear with one another in love, to endure one another in love. This means that if we only love people when they're easy to love, Jesus is saying we're not really loving anybody in his way. Jesus' command is sacrificial love. That's our primary idea this morning, that walking in the way of Jesus, in the way of love, looks far different than we imagine. Who in your life are you called to love like this? Just in the last 36 hours, a good friend of mine, um, been walking this journey the last couple days, a good friend of mine fell into moral failure. He's been married for many years, it just came out that he has uh, walked away from his vow towards his wife and broke it with another person. And what's been fascinating for me to hear and to see and experience, this is literally the last 48 hours, is that his wife's response to him, I don't know how their journey will go, but even in this moment, her response right now is to try to demonstrate love and pursue reconciliation. I can't really fathom what she's going through. What would your posture be? Who in your life needs to experience sacrificial love? Do, do you... Do you have some line where it's like, man, yeah, I'll, I'll love somebody sacrificially up until. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll love them un, until. Does Jesus create that line for us? Is there a line in his sacrifice for us when he says, love others as I have loved you? Is there some arbitrary line there? It doesn't make it easy. 
Maybe there's resentment. Maybe there's bitterness. Maybe there's unresolved issues. Maybe you're in it so deep that you can't see your way out. You feel trapped. You're stuck. Maybe you're even hopeless and bearing and enduring and sacrificial love. The truth about it is it, it might mean that you start a process of forgiveness. It, it might mean confronting something for the sake of bringing healing. Sacrificial love might mean a conversation for the sake of bringing breakthrough. It, it might mean moving when everything in you says, I don't want to move. And yet in the next few verses, Jesus not only redefines, but he motivates. He knows showing sacrificial love is not easy, so he shares some motivating and assuring words related to our identity and relationship with him that helps us when we get stuck when we need to press through. So he redefines, or you could even say he defines the nature of our relationship to him. Let's look again at verse 14 through 17. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that, here's the purpose, so that you will love one another. Now a massive shift has taken place in this conversation. They were once referred to as servants, now they're referred to as friends. And the shift is more than a title or a simple phrase. When we think about it spiritually, this is how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. He says, for while we were enemies, that's who we were, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son Jesus, much more, now that we are reconciled, that means brought back together through faith, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. From enemies to reconciled friends. What was broken is restored through Jesus' sacrificial love. And that change brings both freedom and responsibility. It brings freedom and responsibility. We are free from the penalty of sin. We are free from the power of sin. And we're free now to love sacrificially instead of selfishly. Because prior to faith, prior to the way of Jesus, all the acts that we do that even demonstrate some sense of love ultimately are proven to be something that are done for ourselves. And yet when we are in faith and following Jesus, those acts can now be following the sacrificial pattern of Christ himself empowered by the Holy Spirit. Are you free to love that way? Are you free to love others sacrificially at some cost to you, however great it might be, because you realize you have nothing to gain, nothing to prove, and nothing to lose in other human relationships that you don't already have right now in Jesus Christ? That's the truth of our faith. In Christ, we have nothing to gain, nothing to lose. Nothing to prove that has not already been given. What greater love is there to experience than the love of Jesus? And the change also means that we have this responsibility, that the change from servant to friend means it brings responsibility to go and bear fruit. 
Our lives then have purpose. You have been appointed by God to bear fruit. You have been, the language, chosen by God to produce spiritual fruit. Now, before we talk about the fruit, let's talk about the choosing. Let's talk about the choosing. I, I was thinking about this in terms of the way the world functions. Just today, after these services are done, uh, my oldest daughter, Leah, and I will be driving down to Cedarville, Ohio. It's down near Dayton in the southern part of the state. It's the college, or now the university, that I attended and graduated from uh, forever ago, 2002. And when I was there, I also played soccer for them. And so today, she's going to be heading down there. Uh, last weekend, we were down there as well. The weekend before that, I was down there. It was my third weekend in a row traveling down to Cedarville. I haven't been there in like a decade. But we're doing all these steps because she has interest in attending the school and hopefully playing soccer for them. So last weekend, she did this thing called an ID camp where you go out and you play with other girls in front of the coaches and you basically see if you can get their attention. You know, I'm subjective. I get it. I'm sometimes objective, subjective. I thought she was the best one, you know, so <laughs> she's out there. I mean, she was definitely the prettiest one, but, you know, she's out there on the field doing her thing. And they asked her to come back this weekend uh, so that she could stay with a few players overnight tonight and then practice with the team tomorrow and have a tryout. But here's the reality. I mean, when you think about it, she's vying for a spot, and we've talked about this quite a bit. She's vying for one of seven spots on a team against whatever number of people trying out there to join this team. And so she's going to go and play, and she has to wrestle with the questions. Are they going to pick me? Will they think I'm good enough? Will they give me a purpose? I want to be part of this thing. Will I be able to be called part of this thing, or will they reject me? Will I have a place? And this is how the world is. You're always in some kind of competition, always trying to be accepted, always trying to be received, always trying to be acknowledged. Are, are they going to like me enough? Are they going to receive me? Are they going to extend to me that offer? Are they going to do this? Are they going to do that? Have I performed enough so that they would say that I am worthy? And this is how relationships so often function. This is how our world goes. Just perform, and then the other person gets to say, you're not good enough. Perform, get out there, try to do all that you can because you want to receive that love from that other person, that other place, that other thing. And so you do all that performing, and then they can just say, sorry, I'm not giving you anything. What does that do with our hearts? We're constantly striving to be called worthy by people and places in this world. Friends, realize what Jesus is saying. You've already been chosen. Like what, whatever you think of yourself, realize that God has much grander thoughts of you than you could ever really have for yourself. He sees all of who you are, he receives you, he sacrificially loves you, and he has appointed you to a mission that is eternity changing. And so right now, in faith, he says you are worthy. Regardless of what any other person on planet Earth might say, he says you are worthy. I've chosen you before the foundation of the world. And because you've been chosen, it's ultimately not based upon your righteousness, your worthiness. It's the worthiness and righteousness of Christ that's been applied to you. And now forever, you are sealed by his perfection. So he calls you worthy. So why do we chase? 
when we have the creator of the universe saying, you are enough. Why do we chase everybody else's affirmation? Why do we define our relationships that way? Why do we perform? Friends, walk out the doors today, releasing that weight. It will only get heavier. You don't need to carry it anymore. You don't need it anymore. If you are in faith in Christ, you are considered worthy. You have received the love of the eternal Father, and it can never be taken from you. In John 15, 16, then, Jesus says, well, whatever you ask then in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So, well, what is he wanting to give us? This is where we need to define fruit. Now, the fruit that is being talked about here, the fruit that is meant to abide, the fruit that lasts, the fruit that dwells, it's disciple-making. A very simple little phrase that helps me, what's the fruit of an apple tree? Well, the fruit of an apple tree is another apple tree. What is the fruit of a Christian? The fruit of a Christian is another disciple. That's the fruit of a Christian. And this is the fruit that we're meant to produce in our lives. And so as long as we're working towards that, praying towards that, in that context, Jesus then says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Maybe you're thinking, well, so many people misinterpret this text. It's a very similar phrase that was just used a few weeks ago, just a few chapters prior. So you're thinking, does whatever you ask in my name mean that, uh, that whatever I ask or pray for in Jesus' name I get? I just, if I, if I pray and then say, in Jesus' name, then I get it? it? No, friends, that's not how it works. If you spend any time in prayer, you know that's not how it works. Jesus is not some genie in a lamp. He's not a potion or magical power or catchphrase to get you what you want to build up your own glory in the eyes of others by claiming and commanding that God must do what you say since you used his son's name. And this is not on-demand prayer. This is submitting our will to the will of the Son as the Son has submitted his will to the will of the Father. Remember, the Father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. It's just aligning our heart and character with his. That's the type of prayers he's talking about. This is connecting our hearts and our words and our actions to his heart, his words, his actions. So we ask, which means we are placing ourselves under the agency of God. We ask in Jesus' name, which means we are placing ourselves under the authority of Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, to Jesus. So we aren't the ultimate decision maker. He is. God is. So the kind of prayer cannot be self-serving. When we're praying this way, it can't be self-serving prayers in any way because to pray in Jesus' name means to deny ourselves and follow his way of sacrificial love, which is more about the Father's will than it is our own. So it's aligning ourselves in that way. So if your prayers are more about your mission than his mission, your comforts, as opposed to his purposes, his kingdom, then don't expect answered prayer. But this isn't meant to keep us from praying. This is meant to focus our praying. It's meant to, it's meant to center our prayers on what it means to bear fruit. So prayer is about asking and letting go, lifting up and laying down and seeking and surrendering. 
And as we pray to the Father through the Spirit, in the name of the Son, he will respond to, what, to us in whatever way will ultimately bring him glory. So he says, when you ask these things in my name, when you pray about these things in my name, these things I will do. And as we're furthering this mission of disciple making in the world, he says, these things I command you then finally in verse 17, so that you will love one another. All of this given, all of this context, all of this speaking, why? To teach them how to love one another, to fulfill his command. So he defines love. He defines it sacrificially. And he defines our relationship. I'm not sure how it was for you, but I'll kind of close this way. When I, when I think about defining the relationship, at least back in my generation's time, when you were in college, and Katie and I have this conversation, usually around our anniversary, where we say, it's just so, we're just so thankful we're not dating anymore. We're just so glad not to be in the stage of life where we have to date and where you have to go through this thing. And we used to talk about it all the time called the DTR, you know, define the relationship. Like, that's such a hard part of life. And for all of you here who are in that season of life or single, God bless you. I'm praying for you. We need to be there for you. It's so hard because you're like going on dates and you just, you just don't know. There's, there's just no certainty. And so it's like, well, I, I think I might have some thoughts for him or I think I might have some thoughts for her, but I'm not sure if they really have those thoughts about me and I'm not sure really what I ought to say. Am I supposed to bring this up? Am I, am I supposed to have a conversation? I don't really want to put myself out there because I don't know if they're going to reciprocate. And if I put myself out there and they don't reciprocate, then I'm going to feel rejected. And, and so should I just kind of keep going and having a good time? And just are, are we just friends or something more? Like, should I keep some other people on the back burner, you know, and just like keep texting them and just make sure I keep my options available and open or, or should I kind of shut some of that down and move forward? And, and like, am I supposed to say I love you first or are they like super awkward if you toss that out there? And it's like, yeah, thanks for sharing. That's awesome. <laughs> like, what, what are you going to do? It's so hard to have this whole thing where you go through life and you're just wondering, it, where's it going? What, what's the definition around this relationship? The truth is, even in a marriage, there is no human relationship on planet Earth right now that is that certain. But there is no uncertainty in Christ. You will you will have uncertainty in every other relationship in this world except for one. Your relationship with Jesus through faith, according to the word of God, it is fixed. It is secure. It is eternal. It has been sealed in the sacrificial blood and the love of Jesus Christ on the cross. It has been guaranteed through the reality of the resurrection and guaranteed through the Holy Spirit of God that is literally dwelling in you even now through faith. It's yours forever. It's not some little infinity symbol that you tattoo for your relationship with some initials. Like, like it's forever. There's no uncertainty in Jesus Christ. What is God's greatest hope for your life? love, that you'd understand it, 
that you'd receive it and that we'd share it first together so that the world might see. That's my prayer for this church family in the days ahead. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this day. Father, I pray for any who are perhaps watching online this morning, if they or anyone in this room for that matter have not yet received the love of Jesus Christ through faith and they've chased after it throughout all these relationships, throughout the years of their life and they're just searching and searching and scraping and clawing and hoping. Father, I pray through your Holy Spirit that they would come to the realization in these moments that ultimately love is found in you. That Father, through your Son and through his sacrifice, you have made a way to bring permanent, eternal reconciliation. And that through faith, we have the forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and we are given every glory that Jesus has won us because of what he has done. So Father, those who have not received that love, I pray that through your spirit, they would feel the conviction that only you can bring. And even in these moments, they'd maybe type in a chat, just, I need to connect with someone. I'd like to connect. Or as we sing and close the service, that Father, those in the room, they'd have the courage to say, I need that type of love. I've been looking for it everywhere. I need the love of Jesus. They would come forward with the men and women who will be here, receive prayer, ultimately, Father, receive salvation. And Father, for those of us who have received that great gift, I pray that we would remember that the love that we're called into, it's a sacrificial love. It's not selfish. It's self-giving for others. And because we are in Christ, we are fixed, we are secure, we are your children, adopted sons and daughters of the King. We've been called worthy, we've been called righteous, we've been called yours. Nothing will ever change that. No person can break that bond that has now been sealed at the cross. So Father, may we leave this place with a weight lifted, hopeful, even if it means sacrifice that costs us, hopeful that we don't have to carry the weight of trying to perform. Father, may you receive the glory for what you're going to do through this church family for your name's sake. Be with us this morning and help us to respond just saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand and let's respond together.